Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Washington Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Washington moves toward a short-term continuing resolution, but more Ukraine aid is uncertain. Ukrainian forces are taking heavy casualties for a lack of Western support. London and Kiev have struck a bilateral security agreement that could pave the way for British troops to be stationed in Ukraine. As the United States strikes Yemen, Iran has attacked Pakistan and Islamabad has responded. The DPP has won the Taiwanese presidency but lost the parliament, and Bibi Netanyahu has again rejected U.S. and Arab peace proposals to end fighting in Gaza and create a two-state solution. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, uh, welcome back to the program. Uh, certainly an action-packed week. Michael, uh, start us off. Uh, looks like we, you know, we've been talking about a short-term deal. It looks like we have a short-term deal. Uh, senior lawmakers visited the White House uh, a couple of times. Unfortunately, we heard from the Speaker um, that there would be no Ukraine deal, in part because uh, the GOP is holding firms uh, firm on uh, immigration and border uh, enforcement. Maybe the president is a little bit less eager uh, to uh, support. Walk us through where we stand right now on both. Uh, you know, keeping government open, then getting to those those 12 appropriations bills then, and then what that means for Ukraine funding, uh, as well as all eyes around the supplemental and and the situation, frankly, in Ukraine. Uh, we're not magnifying this, you know, it, it, you know, even saying that it's dire might be sugarcoating it. Right. No, you're right. And so we'll start with what's happening before we get to what's not happening. Uh, so as you mentioned, you know, the uh, House and Senate did pass another uh, continuing resolution this week. It's the third one. So hopefully, you know, three times the charm. So and they went with this uh, weird laddered approach again. So the CR that was set to expire today, which was four appropriations bills, now is set to expire on Friday, March 1st. And the other CR, which concluded eight appropriations bills, which would have expired on February 2nd, now expires on uh, March 8th. Uh, the Senate you know, passed it overwhelmingly, but there were two amendments offered, and one which was a little alarming that Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas offered up an amendment which lost that would have teed up a full year CR. Uh, but 13 senators who are Republicans voted for it, many of which were national security senators. And Senator Risch, who is the ranking member on Senate Foreign Relations, uh, Senators Budd and Tupperville, who are on Armed Services, and Senator Daines, who's on Defense Appropriations. So I think that was a surprise to the national security community. Then, of course, after the CR was uh, released, the House Freedom Caucus came out against it, uh, complaining that it continues Pelosi spending levels, Biden policies, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so they then went to see Speaker Johnson yesterday after the Senate had already passed it, trying to get him to amend the CR to put their border policy bill, H.R. 2, on the CR. If Johnson had done that, that would have resulted in, in a shutdown. So, of course, Johnson uh, did the right thing, did not do it. CR passed the House. However, it passed uh, 314 to 108. Uh, uh, 106 of the 108 were Republicans voting against uh, the, the CR. Right. Uh, as you mentioned, too, um, Johnson, uh, also with Jeffries, Schumer, and McConnell, uh, did meet with uh, President Biden at the White House on Wednesday. Now, remember, 
Johnson did ask for a meeting with the president last week and was declined and he got a phone call instead. Uh, so this meeting does come again, I think, very late in, our, in the process here. And I feel like the supplemental discussion is becoming like the Build Back Better discussion. We're going to be talking about it every week. Uh, and right. then, you know, Build Back Better did happen. I'm starting to wonder whether the supplemental will happen. Um, now, following that meeting, you know, Schumer came out saying that his goal is to begin the floor process on uh, this bill next week, which will include uh, some border language. Uh, Johnson, however, is is not committing to put the Senate bill uh, on the floor. And it's really, you know, two reasons. One, uh, and this is these are not new. When it comes to Ukraine, the House Republicans have been asking the administration for a long time, what's the end game uh, in Ukraine? And the administration has been contradicting itself when it talks to uh, talks to the Republicans. So they want to understand what the end game is there before we commit more funds. And two, of course, what we've been talking about is that they want border policy. You know, Johnson continues to say we have to take care of our own house first and we have to secure our own border uh, before we talk about doing anything else. That is not news to the White House. And it, it's all very you know, surprising you know, to me because, um, you know, one, the, the Republicans are a little split on this. McConnell is saying, look, there could be a border deal on the table here. and We've got to take it because it's our only chance to do it, because if Trump gets elected, we won't be able to do it and, uh, and we'll be able to do it in, in next year, even if Biden gets reelected. Johnson seems to be saying to his folks that. The only way we're going to be able to do this is if a Republican uh, takes over the White House. And, you know, Democrats, you know, in the past, you know, before Trump really tended to be supportive of, you know, compassionate forms of immigration, but also supported a strong border. And it seems like Trump's right. anti harsh anti-immigration stances have pushed the party in, in the completely opposite direction, where now all of a sudden Democrats are willing to accept high levels of undocumented immigration and oppose enforcement measures that they once favored. And the shift is creating a huge political vulnerability for the Democrats. We've seen a huge surge in, in migrants crossing the border. Uh, and they these migrants believe correctly that as long as they get to the U.S., they're going to be able to stay here for years. And polling is now showing that 75 percent of Americans see the problem of illegal immigration as very or somewhat serious. And huge majorities of Americans want more border agents. They want to deport immigrants who are here illegally. They want fines for businesses who knowingly hire unauthorized workers. They want to use the military to stop illegal immigration. They want to build a border wall. This is a huge vulnerability for Biden. I don't understand why he, they just don't agree to border policy here and take this issue off the table because this could be extremely uh, damaging to them uh, in the next election. And then even if there is a border deal uh, and put on the supplemental, now Marjorie Taylor Greene has threatened to file a motion to vacate against Johnson uh, if he cuts a deal to fund Ukraine, even like I said, even if there is a border policy on there. So uh, and Eli Crane, who's one of the ones who uh, voted to overthrow McCarthy, has also said that it's possible he would vote to uh, Mike Johnson out as well. So uh, it is looking darker and darker uh, for the chances of the supplemental passing. Um, all I will tell you, and I've said this from the very beginning, there are Donald Trump's fingerprints on this, and he is using his agents in order to be able to do this. Uh, you know, I, I I think that there is a perverse interest the former president has and an attraction that he has to on for Putin. And and it is uh, unfortunately. Well, that's an excellent point, um, right, because that's expected now, too, when the Senate does cut this deal on the border and try and put that in their uh, supplemental uh, next week that uh, Trump will come out against it. That is, and that, and that will kill the whole thing. Uh, correct. And and so we've got to figure out what the alternate means there are to figure out how to do this uh, and and to at least marshal enough support uh, to try to do it. I understand that the speaker, you know, has been working, you know, hard on this. But again, I also see the immigration issue as a way to um, 
the immigration issue is the way that you killed Ukraine uh, aid. Uh, and, you know, you've got a speaker who became speaker and he wants to stay speaker. So I think, you know, yeah, it's I, not I, unreasonable. I, the leading candidate for the presidency of his party calls mm-hmm. him and says, Mike, I need you to do the right thing. And you got to no. move away from Ukraine aid and you didn't like it anyway. I don't. That's not true. Right. Johnson's not a survivalist. Johnson supports Ukraine aid, but he also supports strong border policy. Right. right. And the administration has known this for a long time. They've ignored it. They didn't engage until it was way too late. And they made the mistake on just negotiating with the Senate. They're not negotiating with the House. The House right. is not going to swallow what the Senate sends them. They need to be part of these discussions as well. Uh, there's a lot of blame to go around for this when all is said and done. Um, all I will tell you is it's the right thing. We have to do it. And if Putin wins and Putin already knows he's going to win, it's highly problematic. Jim, uh, let me uh, turn to you uh, on this at, at this point. Right. I mean, we're seeing the sort of antics uh, here. Uh, the administration, I think, did the right thing by tying Ukraine aid to deterring China. Um, you, the, there's no worse signal to send than, you know, basically confirming what the Russians and the Chinese are saying that the Americans are always temporary and we're long-term guys. Um, you know, I heard from a senior Ukrainian commander uh, this week, which was one of the most depressing conversations that I've been part of for a long time. Something like between two and 800 of Ukraine's most experienced troops are dying uh, or, or being wounded on a daily basis. Uh, the guy basically said, look, I'll be honest with you. And this is a guy who's not known for hyperbole. He's like, we, we, we're running out of ammunition. So he said, basically, if, if you guys dawdle too long, there really won't be anybody to use these bullets when you eventually send them to us. That's how dire this situation is. Um, um, there is the there's an incredible deal that the Brits uh, struck uh, with the, the Ukrainians by, by bilateral uh, agreement and has something like two point five billion pounds of aid associated with it, which is terrific. The Brits have always led on this. Uh, and indeed, it opens the door for British troops to be uh, based uh, in uh, the country, even though there are still British troops uh, that are in the country, by the way. I should say the Brits did not withdraw all of their forces uh, from uh, from the country when this began. Medvedev, again, is shaking the nuclear saber. Where where are we on this? How dire is this situation? Um, because P- Putin is not interested in sort of freezing borders like Washington Salon intellectuals. He is making it clear he is going to conquer Ukraine, period. And he's going to have 1.5 million troops at his disposal. He's been building up his army and arming up for the next big push at a time when the Ukrainians are just exhausted. Where are we going with this? Well, I think it's as dire as you laid it out. Your uh, Ukrainian uh, interlocutor there uh, talking about ammunition shortages and uh, some of his more skilled uh, fighters, uh, you know, being killed. I've been hearing the same thing. So I think there should be no doubt uh, that things are dire. It's not hyperbole. It's not Ukraine trying to play tricks to get more money and assistance. It is that dire. Um, there's some, you know, there's some clever uh, usage by the by Ukraine of what they have now. You, you certainly have heard by now about shooting down um, some of some very valuable Russian uh, radar aircraft. They're like, it's like our AWACS. Uh, um, and, um, you know, so there is some positive out there, but this is the middle of winter. Um, everyone's digging in. There are there are renewed Russian uh, uh, offensives going on in small scale, but they're happening. And but there's it's the recapitalization, I think, that we're worried about in terms of Russia. What will they look like come spring, summer 
in terms of manpower, uh, in terms of their own ammunition. They're pulling, as you know, ammunition from North Korea that doesn't always work all the time. But uh, but but they are taking steps in Moscow to uh, to take advantage of this fighting season coming up and this and this um, impression that they have, which is that the U.S. and the West are not as strong behind Ukraine as they were last year. And I think I think Putin is certainly getting ready, you know, to to uh, exploit that feeling among the West by re- having reversals on the battlefield. So, so I'm, you know, we're just sitting here holding our breath, waiting to see what's going to happen. I know in Europe, whether it's the UK, as we saw some statements coming out of Germany as well, that uh, the Europeans realize that they are that they are going to have to to fill a gap, that things are not looking. Uh, it's Rosie in Washington, as they might have thought earlier on. And we've got, of course, the potential that Trump could be president and the Europeans have got to get ready for that. But one point that I've heard expressed a couple times is that um, that, that uh, by by Europeans uh, or by certainly uh, U.S. folks in Washington, as the Europeans come through and visit with us, is that there there still is a feeling in Europe that uh, eventually things are going to work themselves out in Washington, that eventually the supplemental will go and we'll get back on track to where we were uh, last year, that there's that there's not the quite the understanding in every capital um, that things are not looking so good here uh, in terms of our politics and in terms of the supplemental, et cetera. I mean, they need to listen to Michael. <laughs> Michael needs to go go on the road, you know, and go to Europe and hit all those capitals and 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 tell them how it is. I think they're beginning to get that message, uh, London particularly, but I don't think it's as well understood. And by the time they really get it, it's going to be really too late. Is uh, is the right answer for NATO troops to be increasingly based in Ukraine as a deterrent for Russia to at least freeze the borders where they are? Is that something that ultimately helps, even if it's considered to be a dramatic step? And Medvedev, you know, is, was one of the group of people who says stupid crap all the time anyway, well, that that has worked on Washington, right? I mean, all of this nuclear saber rattling has slowed our decision making. The Ukrainian guy confirmed, you know, if we had gotten the stuff when we had asked you to get it, it would have made a difference. We're not getting it. You know, it, it's you should listen to the guy at the front end who's going to use them as opposed to what it is you think that they need anyway. Well, Let's we'll have to have the historians sort that out, that if things had been different, in fact, the Ukrainians could have pushed the Russians out. I mean, as an armchair strategist just a year or so out from that that time, uh, you know, you would think that might be the case. But but I think that I, I'm not so sure it necessarily would have been the case. But but that's not the point. I I think your point about if uh, NATO nations, uh, the U.S., U.K., French, others, if we put troops in the Ukraine to um, to do training or to whatever it might be to kind of strengthen the deterrent, you know, would that be a good thing? And what I would say is this. NATO or NATO nations unilaterally, bilaterally, will not do something like that if they think the U.S. isn't going to be there to pull their chestnuts out of the fire. In other words, U.K., I don't I don't see U.K. forces, trainers or others necessarily going into Ukraine into harm's way if they feel that the U.S. might under Trump or, or even today, the U.S. might be kind of backing away from uh, supporting Ukraine. They don't want to be caught out by themselves, you know, uh, in a dangerous place without a U.S. 
uh, force over the horizon, if you will. And so I, I, so as much as, uh, I mean, I've written, I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs uh, saying that we should have a prepositioned armored combat, uh, armored combat teams worth of equipment there, uh, you know, in Ukraine, uh, so that uh, if things got bad, we could fall in on that prepo and and use it. Of course, I was just being bold, uh, but I think that kind of thing right now, um, as much as it would certainly show the Russians and, and Putin that we're in it for the fight, that we're not going to just be on the sidelines and throw rocks, that that we're going to put skin in the game. Yes, that would be quite a deterrent. But I do not see NATO or NATO nations doing that, particularly if the U.S. isn't in the game as well. Um, I, I'm going to go uh, to Dove in a moment, but I want to bring Patrick uh, in on this, right? I mean, we explicitly have built a strategy that says we are helping Ukraine in order to be able uh, to deter China. Um, and uh, I've asked you this question over and over again. Have we seen any nuanced change in the way the Chinese are, are looking at this? And by the way, folks are increasingly saying the Chinese are absolutely helping the Russians in every possible way they can, perhaps short of shipping bullets, whether it's by digi drones, uh, uh, microelectronics, uh, machine tools, uh, you name it. So this massive uh, you know, buildup the Russians are making for their big push when spring comes, uh, I think is almost going to be an unstoppable onslaught. We were wrong about that before, but the Russians have a tendency of losing battle after battle after battle, but they're willing to throw a lot of people into the breach in order to win it. And now you have the Iranians that are helping them. Uh, you have uh, the Russians building on the Iranian capability. They, uh, you know, they now have jet-powered Shaheds, for example. They're getting the North Korean ammunition. By the way, on the battlefield, they're working well enough, uh, Jim. Uh, and and now you've got the Chinese muscle going behind it. Patrick, how are the how are the Chinese seeing all of this? And 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 how um, you know? I mean, that axis. Uh, the the cranks, uh, as Peter Van Prague of the Halifax Forum says, I think rightly, I mean, they see themselves as, as being in the ascendancy, don't they? Well, it's hard to see inside Xi's brain. In fact, if you want to do that, you might want to read a brand new book by my former Oxford classmate, Steve Tsang, um, who's written a great book on the political thought of Xi Jinping. And he would probably say, yes, he does see... Uh, China in the ascendancy even right now. Uh, and I think if you're looking at the Ukraine war, um, China's position has evolved, but not fundamentally changed. It doesn't want to see drastic escalation, a wider uh, war that escalates horizontally or vertically, but it doesn't mind um, seeing the war prolonged, and it doesn't mind uh, seeing Russia uh, on the side that's at least doing better, uh, if not winning. Um, there may be no win in this there could be a loss. And I think um, China is doing a lot to help Russia. It's not doing everything, though. I think I think we have to be more uh, sort of uh, objective on this, that there are things that China is not doing. China is even providing spare parts on drones to Ukraine, for instance, still. So there are things that China is playing it all ways, uh, as always. Um, but it's definitely prolonging the war, uh, as is North Korea and as is Iran and others. And with our election prospects right now, you know Putin wants to hang in there and make this a decisive knockout blow, and then hopefully have Trump back uh, and make a deal. Um, and that really puts uh, a lot of stress on the transatlantic alliance at a time when it's difficult for the Biden administration to be too forward-leaning uh, in an election year when your opposition is going to be arguing that we're, we've done too much already. So it's a very tricky uh, issue, but the Chinese 
um, they're looking more at uh, what's going on between Pakistan and Iran right now. They're looking at, they're looking at the, uh, the the war in the Red Sea because their shipping is affected, as Wang Yi uh, mentions. Uh, and um, they are also uh, eyeing uh, the prospects for what comes next in Taiwan as they're going to reach out very carefully, probably, and, and create some back channels to the new DPP-elect government, I suspect. Um, they're also just struck a deal with the Philippines over the maritime issues. That's a very short live deal. It's going to be tested sorely this year. But nonetheless, it looks like China is throttling back, hedging its bets and watching all of these fronts at the same time and waiting for the American election. Um, uh, Dove, uh, I want to get to the um, Iran-Pakistan strikes uh, in a second, which you've uh, written about. But I uh, want to get your sense on what mechanisms the administration has as a former comptroller to get more money and maybe uh, bring uh, Michael back into this about whether lawmakers who are committed to helping Ukraine are trying to figure out other creative ways of doing it. I don't know what there is because in our system, uh, Congress has to both authorize and appropriate the money and the way that it's used, right? But I mean, are there any mechanisms, uh, innovative mechanisms that could be used in this because I completely agree on border security. We need to have border security. I've always been a border security, smart border security guy. But at the end of the day, letting Putin win is going to be devastating. So, you know, you just have to figure out what is ultimately more important to you, a border deal of some fashion or letting the Ukrainians lose. And we're just going to let them lose is, I think, what we want to do because of the personal interests of one man who wants to become president again. Go, go ahead, Dove. What are the ways to do this? And, and well, Michael, uh, your sense. First, yeah, first of all, let me point out, uh, I think uh, Jim is right about NATO. Remember, if NATO is going to do anything in Ukraine, all of NATO has to agree. I doubt Turkey and Hungary would agree. Uh, and so that's a dead letter to begin with. Um, and I think we're not going to stick our necks out too far because it's an election year. So Jim's right about that. What could we do? Well, uh, for starters, we have been uh, using presidential drawdown authority, I think about 46 times now uh, to give stuff to Ukraine. I'm not sure. It depends on how much we want to risk running down our own stocks. Uh, but we probably still have a little bit of uh, runway uh, to give them more of that. The other thing you can do is you can declare an emergency uh, and uh, essentially what we're doing with Israel is letting the Israelis buy stuff. Uh, we've done that twice now. I think we'll see more of that. The last time was about 147 million, which isn't anything close to 60 billion, but at least it's a trickle. Now, the Ukrainians don't have money. What we could do, we've done this before. It's rare, but we've done it we can essentially lease stuff to the Ukrainians huh. and then figure out later on how they'll pay us back or whether we want to forgive the lease entirely. Uh, that again, isn't going to get us. It, it's, the, you know, the 60 billion, by the way, includes a, a lot of non-military aid. And right now it's the 45 or so billion of military aid that really matters. This isn't going to be a touch on 45 billion, but I think that if we continue to provide something to the Ukrainians, uh, that will allow those in Europe to see, well, the Americans are still doing something. I think if it all gets cut off, um, yeah, Jim's right. The British are going to be out on a limb. They're not going to want to be. 
you've got a prime minister who's very, very weak. Sunak right now, his party is about, oh, I don't know, 25 or so percent behind labor. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the British public isn't going to want it. The, the government be spending a ton on Ukraine when there's stuff that needs to be done at home there. So uh, we're going to have to do something. I think leasing, a combination of leasing and more drawdown will allow us to at least play for time. But again, as you've heard, Putin's playing for time. Uh, and uh, his whole game plan is that Trump wins the election. Uh, and once that happens, I think there's a real problem for Ukraine. What's the stomach, uh, Michael, uh, on the Hill uh, for creative uh, solutions? Um, you know, whether it's a lease arrangement, whether it's any of those mechanics, uh, ultimately, because I have to say, even among folks I know on the Hill, their sort of Domani approach, well, they'll get aid, but it'll probably be around, you know, April or whatever I find, you know, or, or maybe June. I, I think it's game over if that's when you're going to send it. I mean, just save the money at that point, not to be cynical, but. Right. Look, saying? I think that there is still a vast majority of members of the House and Senate who support aiding Ukraine. If a bill was put on the floor today, it would pass overwhelmingly in both the House and the Senate. Uh, so I think they would. Yeah, but uh, the speaker be, is not going to put that bill on the floor. I, so I, I, right, now, right now, he's not. Right. I think, again, I think he would put that bill on the floor if there was a border deal in there that he felt that he could agree to and his members could swallow, which does not have to be all of HR2, by the way. Right. They're just not part of this discussion right now, part of the negotiation. But the creative ways that Dove, I think, really expertly just uh, laid out would be things that uh, I think a lot of people in Congress uh, would support. Uh but, you know, I think, you know, it's funny, you went through creative ways of helping Ukraine. I keep thinking of uh, going back to Iran-Contra, maybe Oliver North, you know, come up with some creative ways of aiding Ukraine since he's the one who figured out how to creatively aid the Contras. But yeah, I think, yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't want that as well as a pre-existing deal to yeah. hold hostages and get away. I mean, that was exactly. just too unseemly. Right. I know. That's, that's just not good. Uh, but it's, but, right, but I, I thought the same exact thing. Exactly. Cause, so. Right. Because I, I was working in the White House then when this was all happening. So, um, but, uh, you know, I, Again, the, the will is there. Uh, so I think if there's a way to do it, they, they will do it, right? But uh, I think this this whole supplemental, too, is so unwieldy and so many pieces to it. That's why I think this is going to drag out for a while. Because remember, yes, there's aid to Ukraine, which is critical, but there's also money in there to help replenish our own defense industrial base, right? And also, now McConnell wants to add money uh, to deal with the Red Sea issue with, with the Houthis, right? And we have a defense budget that will come out uh, after, the, we've, after the CR is done, uh, that will be delayed. That's only going to grow defense at one percent. So the strains on our own defense and our own industrial base are going to be severe. Plus, there's money uh, in the supplemental for Israel, which everybody's committed to try and get done. I wouldn't say everybody. A lot of progressive Democrats are against it, and also aid for Indo-PACOM. So this is a, a very convoluted piece of legislation that uh, is not going to die a quick death. But it's it's really hard to predict uh, where it's going to be because it's very unusual to see the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans really on completely different pages on this. Um, I'm Vago, let me just jump in. I wouldn't say convoluted. Uh, I would say comprehensive. Go ahead, Doug. Vago, yes. Uh, I think that I, I don't disagree with Michael at all on this. It seems to me right now, of course, there is no more money going to Ukraine. Uh, people need to realize that. Uh, and exactly. so maybe the kinds of things that I've talked about will allow things to play out on the Hill until such time as there is a vote to give Ukraine real money. In other words, your point about it being, you know, April or May being too late would only be too late if we went four or five months without giving them anything. 
But if we could play this out, maybe along the lines that I've suggested, that still means that something is going to Ukraine. And at that point, hopefully, if some kind of deal can be worked out on the immigration issue, then it'll be easier for Congress to say, "Okay, we've been giving them some money. Now let's get serious about it. Let me add one quick thing to that, too. I think Dub is is, is, uh, spot on is, you know, yesterday the German defense minister came out warning that Putin could attack NATO in the next five to eight years. But we also saw we talked about several weeks ago in the the Wall Street Journal did a story on how the fact that uh, among other nations, Germany only has enough ammunition to fight a war for two days and only 100 main battle tanks that are operational. So if if these guys are going to raise the alarm bell, they've got to show they're taking the threat seriously to Europe and they have to start spending the 2% of their GDP on defense. And that will help the arguments in Congress as well. They are, uh, look, for what it's worth, they are. They're ordering artillery shells. Rheinmetall is gearing up uh, their production, uh, you know, acquired uh, Spanish uh, factories. Um, You know, the Bulgarians are turning uh, rounds out uh, in huge numbers, the 152s that the Ukrainians need. The Poles are moving. I mean, so yes, there is an it, enormous it, There is, of- but, you're, but, the, but the countries, for the most part, you're referencing are the Eastern European countries who no, no, know no, what it's I'm, like I'm to live the German, under their, Ger- their Germany thumb. even under, under the Titan vendor, although they're still not spending money as quickly as they should. They're mm-hmm. making a whole bunch of moves in order to, to do it. I mean, they, they've got a whole bunch of cultural problems in the Bundeswehr that we don't have time uh, really uh, to uh, discuss. You know, the good the good news is, uh, you know, we do have a large uh, European listenership uh, that does listen to this program. And hopefully folks there are, are, are listening uh, and taking some of these messages as well. I mean, I have to compliment Japan for stepping up and really helping uh, the Ukrainians, for example, with Patriots and, and other uh, cap- uh, capability. Um, I want to um, go back uh, to you, uh, Dove, uh, very quickly to talk us through a little bit. Uh, you know, it's good the administration is finally listening and making successive strikes on the on uh, the Houthis in order to try to get them uh, to stop uh, targeting international shipping. So every time they do something, we additionally degrade their uh, capability. Uh, the Iranians, uh, while at the same time we've been conducting operations, as have the Israelis, uh, and now uh, the Iranians responded, striking Iraq, then striking Pakistan, uh, for part in part because of uh, domestic reasons. Uh, right? I mean, the hardliners are under pressure from even more hardliners in their system uh, to react, especially uh, to uh, the ter- the ISIS terror attack. And then the Pakistanis now have counterattacked uh, Iran uh, over those strikes in Balochistan. Dove, where, where are we right now? Where are we going? And what does all this mean? What a mess. Uh, the Iranians are, are you know, we, we keep talking about how we in the United States are seem to be all over the place in the Middle East. Well, so are the Iranians. Um, they, they were furious because there have been several incidents over the past year where uh, the anti-Iranian uh, terrorists operating out of Pakistan, Pakistani Baluchistan, the Jaish al-Adil, uh, knocked off their policemen, knocked off their soldiers. But you got to remember, too, that the Iranians uh, in 2010 killed the leader of this group. So you've got a revenge factor here on the uh, Pakistani side of Baluchistan. And uh, the Iranians struck. They killed two little kids. They also appear to have knocked out part of a mosque, and I'm willing to bet, although nobody's written that, that it's a Sunni mosque. You know, the the Iranians and the Pakistanis have had a very uneasy relationship ever since the Ayatollahs took over, uh, in part because the Pakistanis supported the the Taliban in the 80s and 90s. 
uh, especially when the Taliban took over. And uh, Iran almost went to war with the Taliban in the 90s and Pakistan mobilized against Iran. So, you know, it's been an up and down relationship. And uh, the Pakistanis, you know, uh, I was in touch with a friend of mine in Pakistan just yesterday. Uh, They were outraged. You can read that in Pakistani press as well by what the Iranians did, violation of territory, killing children, knocking out a mosque, all the rest of it. And the military retaliated. Now, the accepted wisdom is, well, the Pakistanis are, you know, Pakistan's poor country. They've got problems with the IMF. um, And so they're not going to prolong this. Well, not necessarily. Um, The Pakistanis have been a poor country for a long time. It didn't stop them going to war with India for a number of times. Uh, And so, uh, you know, there's not much there's only so much rationality when people get all excited. Uh, The interesting question, of course, and and Patrick uh, alluded to that, is how the Chinese play this. Uh, Pakistan has always considered China their their all weather friend, as opposed to us, who they call a fair weather friend. I was told this by a former Pakistani prime minister, told me that directly. Um, But on the other hand, China's got a relationship with Iran. So they're uh, they're they've got to play this one very, very carefully. But for the Iranians, having taken us on in Syria, taking us on in in, uh, Iraq, uh, you know, of course, supporting Hamas and supporting the Houthis now with with Pakistan. uh, I suspect that somebody over in Tehran realized we may have bitten off more than we can chew, which is why they're trying to, to make nice. In the meantime, uh, the you know yes we're taking out twenty percent of the Houthis each time, uh, or at least that's what we say we're doing. But the fact of the matter is our battle damage assessment has never been great, um, and the the uh, the Talib, uh, the excuse me the the Houthis uh, their whole uh, approach is to shoot and scoot. So it's not always clear uh, if we've taken out some of the launchers that fired at us. Uh, and then I still think that the uh, Biden administration, uh, just like it's been a bit, a bit very slow on supporting Ukraine, uh, they've looked the other way as countries continue to buy Iranian oil. And it has right. made a difference. And oh, by the way, the, the common knowledge that, oh, if if we put sanctions back on Iran, if people buying Iranian oil, the price of oil will go up. Economists are saying that hasn't happened. It didn't happen under Trump and it wouldn't happen again. So there's some stuff we could still do. Um, it's going to be very hard to take out everything the Houthis uh, are getting from Iran because we, we can't board every Dow, those little ships that ply that region. Uh, we can't board every big ship and we don't have enough uh, drones to, fi- to fire at these shoot and scoot uh, launchers uh, in order to take them out immediately. So we've got a problem there and the Houthis, you know, they're going to keep firing at us. So um, there are some things we can do. We need to pressure Iran more. And in a sense, the Pakistani thing works in our favor. It, it, maybe, maybe, maybe the Iranians will realize they've just done too much. And uh, if they don't want things to blow up in their faces, they need to back off someplace. Well, and they also understand there are enormous domestic pressures on them, right? And so they're slightly making nice also cause problems within their own, you know, or being somewhat more restrained ended up causing them problems within their own system. Hey, listen, create a shark tank. Don't get 
surprised that one of your own sharks ends up biting you. Uh, and I just want to commend the audience that Dove has some great pieces uh, in the Hill explaining uh, the Iran-Pakistan situation as well as in the Messenger. Uh, you know, uh, you know, pointing out the U.S. is indirectly arming uh, the Houthis by enabling Iran. Uh, Patrick, uh, I want to bring you into this, and unfortunately, we're going to go into a little bit of a lightning round. Um, you know, uh, uh, Dove uh, mentioned, and I was going to try to bring you in on sort of the Chinese role uh, in this, being buddies with both of these countries, Iran and Pakistan. Uh, you know, what's what's the kind of role? Because they're talking like, well, the Chinese could play a mediating role. Uh, this is what the Chinese want to be sort of seen as the great power getting in here in these crises and, and negotiating a solution. Um, you know, but I, I think people do not necessarily trust the United States, and I'm not sure they trust China even more. So what what is the role here the Chinese play in this? And then I want to go to uh, Taiwan. Uh, we have to go to Israel really quickly and then uh, very briefly talk about politics. So that's a lot in about 10 minutes. <laughs> so go ahead. China wants to avoid escalation of this conflict. So it has a stake in both relations with Pakistan and Iran, but it needs to make sure that it's not embroiled in a, in a wider war um, at the same time. So it's going to play this very carefully. It's not. It's trying to protect its sovereignty. It's trying to build up its internal balancing, as they might call it, including across the Taiwan Strait, biding their time, if you will, so that they have military superiority in the future. And that's the China game. They just want influence. They're not looking for an alliance here. And they, they you know, they're not looking for Russia's disruption, which is what Russia usually looks for. Um, they're looking for a semblance of order that they can uh, exercise control over, some control, or at least the appearance of control. And I think that's their game here. And they're obviously in a very dangerous, uh, overstretched situation. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, the question of the Taiwan election. As we discussed, the DPP's uh, Lai Ching-te, uh, it will be Taiwan's next uh, president to succeed Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, but the KMT won a narrow majority in the parliament of 113 seats. 52 uh, will be uh, KMT seats and, and 51 are DPP seats. Uh, China overreacted, of course, and the island nation of um, Nauru uh, shifted recognition from Taipei to Beijing. What are the implications of the win and this notion of divided government and, and what it ultimately mean, means as well uh, for Taiwan? Well, every all of the three parties that ran in the election had something they, they could declare victory over, including the KMT having a, a very narrow majority in the legislature now, 52 seats, with the DPP having lost their historic uh, control of the yuan, uh, which they'd had uh, in a much bigger margin in 2016. They, they lost some of that margin in 2020. Now they've lost it totally. Um, but even the TPP, the uh, Taiwan People's Party, uh, is now a kingmaker in the legislature because it has eight seats and can control uh, many votes potentially. Um, but um, Lai Ching-de does represent an unprecedented third term for the DPP in the executive branch. And that gives uh, sway over uh, uh, foreign policy, if you will, uh, in China right now is trying to insist on enforcing its one China principle on everybody. Um, it's uh, gone back to crossing the median line with aircraft this week. Um, it's, uh, yes, picked off uh, one of the now only 12 diplomatic partners that uh, Taiwan has. Um, it uh, is uh, told President Marcos of the Philippines after he congratulated uh, Lai Ching-de that um, he needs to read more books. That was the official from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, the Ministry of State Security, their intelligence apparatus is uh, online right now in WeChat on every day, 
talking about the secessionist problem, the separatist problem. They're trying to essentially create a pretext for uh, leverage and coercion, but also potentially Taiwan by force. And I think that's partly what they're doing here. They're they're going to wait and see. They may create a back channel. This is a time to create a back channel. But that back channel may be mostly about trying to uh, limit the damage of Lai Qingde. That is to box him in. He won't accept the 1992 consensus, but maybe he'll at least avoid uh, saying things that could be too provocative from, from Beijing's perspective. And that may be the best they're going to do right now. Dove, Antony Blinken has offered his latest peace uh, uh, plan uh, to end the fighting and pave the way for a two-state solution. And again, Bibi Netanyahu has rejected that out of hand, saying the war uh, is going to uh, continue and a two-state solution is, is not on the table. Uh, he has the full support of Congress, the U.S. Congress, as we've discussed. This is kind of a humiliating situation, isn't it? I mean, it, it massively diminishes the notion of American power. It also kicks, which is, I think, what Bibi wants to do, right? Kicks the ally. He he knows he's going to get 100% support from Biden. So I think he feels he can give Biden uh, a kick uh, on this and that Biden will take the kick, uh, ultimately, because of his commitment uh, to Israel. Meanwhile, the death toll is growing. There's uh, in uh, Gaza, and we still have the issue of 150 uh, Israeli hostages who remain in, in captivity. And it's not abundantly clear Hamas is really being degraded. We're finding tunnels, uh, some rather extravagant tunnels. But really, the senior most leadership, you know, of, of all the people around the table, that picture that was released, a lot of those guys are still around the table. And, and whoever you kill, they're just going to get replaced by new ones. It was a little bit like trying to kill the Hydra. What, what's your sense on on where we are, where we're going? And at what point does it make sense for Washington to just say, you know, th these optics are not good for us uh, from a national power and international power standpoint. So let's just let's just stop. This, will, this is going to go on until, you know, Bibi and, and the Israeli cabinet decide to stop it. I think the most significant development is, is not nothing that you just said. The most significant development in my eyes is the, the fact that the former Israeli chief of staff, Eisenkot, who uh, lost his son already in this war uh, and is a member of the war cabinet, came out publicly and said, the first thing that needs to be done is to get the hostages out. Bibi's argument that fighting the war will get them out is simply wrong and there should be a long term truce. Now, we're were we what that's what we should be pushing for, because quite frankly, once we do that and we we have a truce that takes place, then, it, yes, the Israelis could always use some stray, stray missile attack as an excuse for attacking the Hamas and, and the Islamic Jihad again. But in the meantime, you might get those hostages out. Now, what worries me is I'm hearing from some Bibi supporters that they've essentially given up on the hostages. And if you think about what I, Bibi I have heard saying, the I've heard the same thing, by the way, Doug. Yeah. And so if you follow what Bibi's saying, he's essentially give, given up on them as well. Now, the question of him thumbing his nose at, at Biden, even Joe Biden eventually is going to have to say enough is enough. And there are some, you know, reasonable people on Capitol Hill who who are coming not not the left but reasonable people who are getting fed up with the Israelis. Uh, you take somebody like Tim Kaine, who did not vote for the Bernie Sanders approach, but nevertheless is getting frustrated with the Israelis, and he commands a lot of respect because he, he deserves to get respect. 
Uh, and, and Mike can correct me on this, but it's people like that who might ultimately tell the administration, you have to do something. And the only something that Bibi's going to know is the threat that he's not going to keep getting money. That's the only threat that'll work with him because he knows and we know and everybody knows that this is all about staying out of jail and nothing else. I mean, the truth of the matter is the closest analog to Bibi Netanyahu is Nero, emperor of Rome, who fiddled while his country burned. Um, Michael, uh, you get uh, the very last word, and we've got about a minute uh, and a half or so. And if anybody wants to add anything, we can recap in a second. Uh, Iowa, uh, Donald Trump won, as uh, expected. We had uh, Chris Christie, uh, Hutchison, um, uh, Ramaswamy uh, all drop out. DeSantis uh, is going to be next. It's between Haley and Trump in uh, New Hampshire. And I really think it's irrelevant whatever happens in New Hampshire because Trump is going to win. And indeed, every single thing that happens ends up making him stronger, acting out in court, being indicted. 65% of Republicans say they're going to vote for him anyway. And what's worse, the whole party is saying if he's our nominee, even though we have spent our time criticizing with him, I'm going to go into that voting booth in November and vote for him anyway. What's worth discussing here even, you know, um, he's he's getting special treatment. If you and I had done that in a courtroom, we'd have been thrown out of a courtroom. I don't disagree with you, right? And I think it's very, very likely that Trump is still going to be the Republican nominee. But you know, look, take a look at Iowa, right? Like he did win Iowa. Uh, he came out just over 50%. Uh, but, you know, the one thing to take a look at there is that only 15% of the registered Republicans actually voted in, in the caucuses, right? And yes, he is polling well in New Hampshire, better than I would have expected with Chris Christie out, but again, he's around 50%. So the silver lining here is that half the Republicans do want somebody else, right? And yes, while many um, who are voting for somebody else will vote for Trump, how many of those folks will vote for Biden in a general election, right? And as we talked about uh, earlier this year, now that Trump is for front and center, the poll numbers are starting to change nationally. I've seen two polls this week, one that shows Biden and Trump within two points of each other, Trump at 43% and Biden at 41 and another poll that had them uh, in, in a dead heat. So we still have a long way to go. And again, Trump continues to say things that are going to make people take pause. We talked about last week how he wouldn't sign the, the voluntary pledge to get on the Illinois ballot, that he would not support the overthrow of the government. Uh, this week, he said uh, that Trump, that he will be president for four years and beyond. Uh, things that are going to continue to send warning signs to folks. We have a long way to go, but um, I'm still, um, you know, I, I think it's going to be the, the race that people don't want. It's going to be Biden, Biden and Trump. And it's still anybody's race. Well, uh, interesting indeed. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. And a special thanks uh, to all of our sponsors who help uh, make this program possible. HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. And a reminder for our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcast, Canvas Chips, hosted by our very own Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Aerospace, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own J.J. Gertler. We'll see you again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Until then, have a great weekend, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks very much.